Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The skipper made answer. Be not afraid, my lord. We are on the confines of the frozen sea, on which, about the beginning of last winter happened a great and bloody fight between the Aramaspians and the Nephilibates. Then the words and cries of men and women, the hacking and slashing and hewing of battle axes, the shocking, knocking and jolting of armours and harnesses, the neighing of horses and all other martial din and noise froze in the ice. And now, the rigour of the winter being over, by the succeeding serenity and warmth of the weather, they melt and are heard. <coughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of Patented, a podcast all about the history of inventions from History Hit. I'm your host, Dallas Campbell. Thank you very much for your company. It's lovely to have you with us today. History frozen and thawed. Our planet's past, a little bit like Francois Rabelais' Frozen Voices, as we've just heard, is also recorded in the ice, waiting to be recovered by ingenious and hardy scientists who actually drill down into the ice in places like Antarctica. And in the ice cores that they pull up are preserved bubbles, tiny little bubbles of ancient Earth atmosphere. Obviously, the deeper you drill, the further back in time you're going. But if you hold out your hand and put ice chippings from those ice cores on them, the ice will slowly melt and you will hear the pops and crackles of those bubbles bursting and the gas escaping. Our distant past revealing itself again through sound. It's a really lovely image. It's an image that's been explored lots in literature and art over hundreds and hundreds of years. This idea of somehow collecting sound and being able to preserve it and being able to then play it back at a later date. It's something, of course, that we take for granted now as I speak into a microphone and you listen to this on your headphones or your speakers. But it's only relatively recently we've actually been able to do that. Of course, this all happened in the, the Victorian times. When I first imagined the invention of recorded sound, I thought of, you know who, Edison. But it turns out we can go further back Edison. So this particular episode is about the history of recorded sound, both real and imagined. And to discuss all this, we have not one but two guests for you uh, to discuss the 
imagined, if you like, to discuss recorded sound through art and literature, we've got the novelist William Sutton and William Wright's Victorian crime fiction, amazing Victorian crime fiction. Uh, And we've also got to discuss the actual birth of recorded sound in reality. We've got Patrick Feaster. Uh, Patrick is part of the first sounds group who are dedicated to preserving and discovering early sound recordings. Enjoy the show. Well, it's really good to have you on the show. There's a particular reason I've got you on, other than that you're my best friend. But but I want to talk to you about obscure literary references. Because when we think about the origins of recorded sound, we tend to start with Edison and sort of wax cylinders and Edison going, Mary had a little lamb and all that kind of stuff. But we can go back earlier than that. And we're going to come on to that in a little bit. But I want to go all the way back to kind of the pre-techno times, because there's all kinds of ideas about recorded sound in literary history. And I just wanted to pick your brains about that because you wrote a really fantastic article for the FT, the Fortean Times rather than the Financial Times, obviously, about Captain Vostolok, 16-something. Can we start there, please? Who was Captain Vostolok and why am I bringing him up now? No, Captain Vostolok, I mean, we came across him, so I found him through my brother's work on memory. Professor John Sutton is a kind of memory expert and was reading about origins of sound and metaphors of memory. And... Up came this guy, Vostolok. So, there's a small pamphlet. What year are we talking here? So, this is 1632, the, okay. the pamphlet comes out. A strange pamphlet, and various authors claimed for it. There's a guy called Charles Sorel, who's uh, an interesting figure of the time. Okay, so Vostolok, all we know is he is a sea captain. He's returned from his voyage to the southern lands, and he brought many things from place beyond where Magellan went to, we're told, where the men were bluish and the women were seeking. <laughs> but what astonishes us and makes us admire nature is that, kind of to make up for their lack of liberal arts and sciences, which we have, they have developed other means of communications. Nature has furnished them with certain sponges which retain the sound of articulated voices. It means that when they want to ask something or confer at a distance, they simply speak into one of these sponges, which they then send to their friends, who, receiving them, press them very gently, and out comes the words or whatever has gone into it, which is an admirable means of finding out what their friends desire. And they occasionally send to the chromatic aisles, and they, they ask for some musical concerts to give them some joy so that they can squeeze those funders. See that. See, that's just excellent. The idea you could kind of create a, a mixtape or a recording of music or a mixtape in a sponge, speak into the sponge, the spo- like holding water. Maybe that's what it means. The sponge holds water and you squeeze the sponge and the water comes out. It's interesting how we've dreamt about this idea of recording sound and, and, and try to imagine technologies that might do the trick, obviously, in the 1600s. And, and I think in the 1600s, there was so much of this kind of stuff going on. Pre-technology, people, space travel is another really good example. People imagining how to go into space obviously long before rockets or jet engines and and people would imagine geese tied to strings attached to chairs and they would migrate to the moon and and those sorts of beautiful poetic ideas which are all rather lovely 
And reflecting, so latest discoveries of other countries, but also like Galileo and discovering all these things on the moon, and then Serrano writes his voyage to the moon, which has another one. Yes, tell us about Serrano. Okay, so Serrano, same sort of went a bit later? Uh, it's pretty soon after, 1657 to 62, he's writing these two uh, voyages to the other world, meaning the moon and somewhere else. So he describes the moon inhabitants, and he says they've got this kind of book and when you place a needle on the chapter you want it will produce a kind of human voice but speaking the lunar language articulating in their own way see where did he get that idea that you'd have a needle as well the, i mean obviously the stylus is such a where we automatically go to when we think in terms of technology yeah but. so there's a massive flurry of people looking at him and saying how did he describe all these things sort of french savant explorers and saying that there's only kind of four possibilities and going through and probably he he did see into the future it was the kind of I love love this. So we've got Captain Vostok and his recording sponge. We've got Serrano. It's a really nice, so so needles on books. My other favourite is is Rabelais. French, crikey, going way back now, 14-something, I think. I can't remember now. Pantagruel, Gargantua and Pantagruel, which is this kind of, I don't know, kind of absurdist Homeric odyssey fable and and other things. I think, I can't remember, in book four, I think, they go to this frozen land, it's called, where there was some terrible sea battle and the screams and the and the howls and the voices of the, the sailors at the time were frozen because it was so cold. And actually, when you revisited the land and the ice melted, the screams would release themselves and you'd be able to hear all that. And I, I love that idea of, of recording history in nature. So you've got something crazy like a sponge, but also ice is a really... Is a, is a good way of recording things in nature. And there is something, again, it's that sort of elegance from literary, literary devices of how on earth can we record sound through to modern day? Okay, so we've got all these beautifully obscure, beautifully poetic literary references. I can take it from there and I'm going to move on. But I really wanted to kind of just establish these beautiful, allegorical, poetic kind of moments in history and literature and art where we have dreamt of this great, this great technology and given it life in, in all kinds of strange and bizarre and beautiful in beautiful ways. Um, how are you, by the way? What are you doing? Are you writing? <laughs> I should point out, Will, Will has a fantastic series of novels. Campbell Lawless, Victorian crime thrillers, which are amongst my favourite novels of all time. But all your books, the invention is is a kind of backdrop to all all of those three novels, and electricity particularly in the, in, in the third one. Yeah, yeah totally. And, and to the extent that friends have said, oh, you've written steampunk novels. I'm like, oh, no, steampunk is kind of fictional. Techno- None of my technology is fictional. So there was a hydraulic power system before, the, before electricity was really harnessed by Edison and all that lot. Hydraulic power ran everything in London, ran the safety curtains in theatres and it ran the cranes in the dockyards and St Catharines. And there was a pressure, I can't remember, 300 pounds per square inch going round the whole of London so that whenever there was a procession, someone from the company, the London Hydraulic Power Company, would have to be with the procession in case there was a burst because it could kill people. So I love that kind of thing. Me too. We're going to pause there and I'm going to pick up the scent of recorded sound. Will, thank you. Yeah, go well in the, in the next bit. I was, uh, it was, yeah, there's a lot that happens. <laughs> After, I'm going to dream of um, sound recording sponges again. It's been in my mind a lot recently. Anyway.
Thanks, Will, for that. So we've imagined recorded sound for a long time. We've imagined all types of methods and technologies from sponges to ice cores that might be able to record sound. But what about reality? Well, my next guest is the world authority on that. Patrick Feaster is part of a, well, a small team called First Sounds who are dedicated to discovering and preserving early recordings. And there's a name that keeps coming up, and it's not the one you might expect, Thomas Edison. It's Edouard Léon Scott de Martinville, who is the first person or, or that we know of who actually didn't play sound back but managed to record sound. Born in Paris in 1817, he wasn't a scientist but he was certainly intrigued in this particular idea. And here's a little piece from an early publication of his when he was developing that idea. Here's what he wrote. Is there a possibility of reaching, in the case of sound, a result analogous to that attained at present for light by photographic processes? Can it be hoped that the day is near when the musical phrase escaped from the singer's lips will be written by itself. And, as if without the musician's knowledge on a docile paper, and leave an impressionable trace of those fugitive melodies which the memory no longer finds when it seeks them. Will one be able to preserve for future generations some features of the diction of one of those eminent actors, those grand artists who die without leaving behind them the faintest trace of their genius. I believe so. The principle is found. Nothing more remains but the difficulties of application. Well, let's investigate those difficulties. Hey, Patrick, listen, thank you very, very much for coming on the show. I've been fascinated by this story for such a long time, like even before I knew you existed. Just tell me a little bit before we crack on about, about First Sounds and about who you are and how you got involved in it. Well, the First Sounds initiative dates back to 2007. Uh, there was a group of four of us, my, myself, David Giovannoni, and then Richard Martin and Megan Hennessy of Archeophone Records. We just wrapped up this other really cool project, a CD release called Actionable Offenses, Indecent Phonograph Recordings from the 1890s, which is exactly what you think it is. One of my favorites. <laughs> wait, tell me about, wait, tell, what is it? It was a collection of uh, off-color stories recorded on phonograph in the 1890s. It was a, a big move at the time to suppress these things. Uh, of course, people felt that they were horribly immoral and it was uh, inappropriate for them to be played on nickel in the slot machines and bars and things like that. Uh, and we, we put them out on CD so that people could experience them in and, and all of their obscene glory. How obscene are they? Are they quite fruity? They're pretty bad. You might assume that uh, Victorians were so uh, straight-laced that nothing they could have had to say would shock us today. But they're they're bad enough that they had to be bleeped when they were played on the radio. Wow. Okay, well, I'm going to get me a copy. Is it still available? Can people? <laughs> it is still available. <laughs> but uh, only on a wax disc or something, or wax. A compact wax disc, I suppose that, that could be going the way of the wax. <laughs> cylinder, but uh, mm. at least for now, they can still be played pretty well. So we had a lot of fun working on that. We wanted to find something else to work on together. And so one idea that, that came up was that uh, the four of us and whoever else we could uh, get to join our quest uh, would seek out the world's oldest 
recorded sounds. I love it. You know, wherever they were, whatever they were, and then we do whatever it took to get them to talk and sing. Yeah. And it's a bit like looking for the source of the Nile, isn't it? Or the, well, the origins of anything, the origins of life on Earth. Okay, because I suppose, when, well, I always imagined it was kind of Edison. All roads lead to Edison when it comes to this sort of thing. And, yeah, this is one road that doesn't lead back to Edison. Okay, okay. So we're going to hear it in a minute. We're going to play it. But first of all, how did you find this? Where did you go looking? What the bra? Yeah, <laughs> okay. So... We knew, and you know, people who read histories of recorded sound knew, that Edison you know, seemed to have been the first person to record a sound and play it back, which, you know, is a pretty big deal. So the, the, this is the differentiation between the two things, between recording sound and playing back sound. I, I think we most people like me kind of put them those, both those things together, but we should separate them, shouldn't we? Yeah, well, you might assume that anybody who's going to go re- you know, out of their way to record a sound is going to want to play it back. Why else would you ever record a sound? But if you put yourself back into a world before anybody had ever played back a recorded sound, it makes a little bit more sense. And, you know, this idea that that, uh, recording sound, even if you're not expecting to play it back, is a kind of imperfect half measure, well, compare that with recording earthquakes. Uh, You've got a seismograph that records the vibrations whenever uh, an earthquake occurs, and nobody would say, oh, well, that's not really what we're looking for. We want a machine that can play back earthquakes as earthquakes, otherwise you haven't done your job. (laughs) I I think if anybody designed a machine to do that, they'd probably be a lot more tightly controlled than uh, seismographs are. And so we, we knew that there had been an inventor before Edison by about 20 years, Edouard Léon Scott de Martinville. My spoken French, by the way, is abysmal. So that will, no, 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 that, that was perfect. I was, str- I was looking at his name going, crikey, I hope I don't have to pronounce that first. So we, we can agree to call him Scott. How's that? Scott, I think okay. we can both handle Scott. That he had invented a machine about 20 years before Edison came up with his phonograph that was able to record sound on paper. Not to play it back, that wasn't the idea, but, but could record sound on paper. Okay, so you're saying he, re- he recorded sound just on a piece of paper. What, what, was, the, what was the mechanism? or how, how did you do that? So he had this device he called the phonautograph. Not phonograph, phonautograph, literally sound self-writer. And he got the idea for this. He was a, a scientific proofreader. This is his, his day job. And one manuscript he got in to proofread was a treatise on physiology by a guy named François-Achille Longer. So he's going along reading this thing and comes up against a description of how the human ear works. And he's fascinated by this. Mm -hmm. It's all about the eardrum. Uh, At least that's the center of this. So you've got this, this eardrum that vibrates when sounds come into contact with it. And those vibrations get passed along into our brains, and that's how we can hear, sense sounds, any sounds. So he's intrigued by this. He thinks to himself, well, what if I built an artificial ear that instead of passing vibrations on into our brains, it would make a little stylus, a little pencil move back and forth against a moving strip of paper so that whatever vibrations hit that eardrum, it'll draw a wavy line. And that's somehow all of the information we can hear has got to be in there somehow. Wouldn't that be great? Then we could record anything we wanted to, any sounds out of the air. Uh, Great vocalists performing on the stage, great 
actors acting out their roles. If I have an idea in the middle of the night and I want to sit up and uh, record it as quickly as I can so I won't have forgotten it by the morning, I could just speak it into my phonograph, have a couple people sitting and, I don't know, negotiating a contract. You could record what they said, all of these ideas. And his idea was that you would record sound as wavy lines in this way and then learn to read them visually so that you could look at a record of a great performance and maybe hear it in your mind's ear. That's really interesting. So the idea of playback wasn't a consideration at this time. It was just simply you would look at the waveform and and then somehow learn to read it in the way that you might read language and, and, and hear it, like you say, in your mind's ear. So it's the same way that if you, you read a poem visually, you can imagine what it sounds like. But this would have all the extras, the, the intonation that you know, makes you know, spoken language exciting. But was it possible? I mean, can one do that? I remember years and years ago, there was a magician in Britain called Paul Daniels, who's p- passed away now. And I remember as a kid watching the Paul Daniels magic show, and they had this guy on. And I thought it was, for the longest time, it was just a magic trick. And he could pick up a record, like a vinyl record, and look at the groove of the record and look at what just the kind of pattern of the groove and just tilt it to the light. And he could tell you what was on it without sort of looking at the label on the record. You know, Beethoven's Fifth, and he could actually read it. And for years, I thought that was a trick. And I actually got in touch with Paul Daniels years and years later before he died. And he was like, no, 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 the guy could actually do it. He 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 could look at a waveform and read it. But I've never heard of another example of it. Well, it's not a trick. Uh, So, although it's limited what you can read that way, I'll say there are some things you can tell just by looking at one of these waveforms about a sound. Uh, I've heard, although I I don't do this myself, that people who are into collecting DJ vinyl, you know, sometimes you'll get pressings that just have a white label on them. They don't tell you Mm -hmm. what's on there. But people who know how to do this can just look at one of those and they can tell what the beat is. Just because if you have a regular beat, it'll tend to make these sort of radiating spokes going out in a particular pattern from the middle of the LP. So they're, you know, within reason, you can read some things. What you can't do, I don't believe anybody can do, is look at a waveform like you get on an LP and understand words. No, well, that's, I mean, I'm looking at, I'm recording this on some software called Audacity, and I'm looking at the waveform as I currently now speak, and it peaks and it troughs, and you can tell where the gaps of the pauses are. But no, you certainly couldn't understand what I'm saying by that. So our friend Edward, if that's how, Edward Scott, he's developed this little machine with a stylus. And so just a bit of paper with a pencil? Like, what did, what did it look yeah. like? And does it exist still, a bit of paper? Uh, well, the, the pieces of paper do. That's how we were able to, to do what we did. But, uh, you know, there are some machines that date back that far. There are also some replicas today. It's not a small machine. You see, it's a, invented this little machine. I mean, it, it'll take up some space on a table if you've got one of these. Now, here's how it works. You have some kind of a sound collector, like a funnel, or a, uh, sometimes they're a little more tub-shaped. But this is what you direct the sound into. You stick your head into one end of it, and you you, you talk or sing or whatever you're going to do. And, and mostly it was being used to record vocal sounds. You could use it to record other things, but it's mostly the voice. So you stick your mouth into one end of it. At the other end of it, there's a diaphragm, a membrane, stretched across a little opening. An eardrum. An eardrum, right. It's an artificial eardrum. The idea is that that will vibrate as sounds hit it. And on the other side of that, there's 
a stylus, which is made out of various things. One of the most common is just a little piece of hair, a bristle hmm. of, of hog hair. Scott tried all kinds of things for this. Uh, pieces of a shrimp he describes using. Whatever really lightweight things he could get that he thought would, would, would work. Actually, well, I could imagine a shrimp leg. I could, pro- But it's quite a leap of logic, isn't it? Well, we've tried hog hair. What mm-hmm. about, oh, I don't know, prawn? <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's quite good. So, but yeah, so, so something that will move back and forth against a sheet of paper. Now, what kind of sheet of paper is this? This is another brilliant piece of the story. So he wanted something that you could scratch a trace on effortlessly, because if it took any work, it would, you know, there's, there's not a lot of force involved here. You, you make that stylus do much work. It's not going to pick much of anything up. So what he would do is he'd take a sheet of paper. Usually what he would do is he'd wrap it around a cylinder, a drum, which he'd then rotate by hand while he was making a recording. And to allow that stylus to trace a groove on it effortlessly, he would cover it with smoke from a lamp. Lamp black is what it's referred to, but just this this thin layer of soot. And you'd scratch a line in that. The stylus would just scratch the soot away, so you'd be left with a, a bright line against a dark, sooty background. After he made this recording... He'd take it off and put it in a, a kind of fixative bath, a little bit like what you'd do to make a charcoal drawing last. Then you'd have your recording. That's amazing. So it was a visual thing. You could hold it up and go, look, I've just recorded Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. You can't hear it, but it's, you can see it. It's a waveform. Right. And you, I mean, you, you couldn't get uh, the Fifth Symphony on there, but you could get, you know, a good 15, 20 seconds. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how Codebreakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists and uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence, Slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race. I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So we've got this. Okay, so... Now, now, where do you come into this, or where does First Sounds come into the story? You find this somewhere under a tree, where, where or in a, in a museum, or so. The four of us are sitting around at a restaurant, okay. After having, you know, we're celebrating being done with that uh, CD project, actionable <laughs> offenses, and say, what, what are we going to do next? And so we, we start thinking, well, this idea, we'll try to track down the the world's oldest recorded sounds. So we ask ourselves, well, what are these? A few years before this, I'd been working on a dissertation at Indiana University in early sound recordings. As part of that, I was trying to learn more about these inventions that led up to Edison's phonograph. And one of them was the phonograph. And uh, so I'd you know, been asking around for information people had about this. And one thing I got my hands on was a copy of Scott's patent paperwork. A photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy, which was really hard to see by that point. But I could tell looking through this that not only was there this handwritten text in French, but there was a phonogram there. So David Giovannoni was going to be going over to Paris anyway for something else. So he made an appointment to go look at that and, and he found it. And it turned out not to be all that interesting. It was a phonogram, but it was a phonogram of a tuning fork. Kind of cool. You know, you can play back a tuning fork vibrating in 1859, but it just sounds like a pure tone. You know, mm. Still, now that we knew that was out there, we started combing through other sources to see if there was any indication that Scott had left phonograms anywhere else. We got a hold of this book he had published just before his death, right after Edison's phonograph had come out. It was basically Scott's attempt to establish his legacy. He published this book to say, you know, hey, I got this idea first. And, you know, Edison playing back sounds, that's not the point. Recording them, that's what you really want to do. And in this, he says that he had left specimens of his work in X place, Y place. So we started looking in all the places he said he had left phonograms. And one of these places was the uh, Academy of Sciences in Paris. And so we placed a request with them. You know, have you got anything that uh, Scott left with you? And they said, oh yeah, we've got this dossier. You want a scan of it? And so uh, David Giovannoni commissioned a scan, got it back. All of these beautiful phonograms in there. Uh, not only that, you know, we could see them. They, they looked beautiful. But mm -hmm. two wonderful things about them. One, they were labeled with inscriptions that told us what they were. And they had uh, inscriptions like Song of the Voice, Eau Claire de la Lune, April 9th, 1860. So we know, okay, this isn't just someone recording a tuning fork. This is a record of song, someone singing. And then secondly, I mentioned that Scott recorded by turning this drum by hand. Now, that's a little bit of a problem if you were looking at playback. Now, imagine to yourself someone trying to play an LP by sticking their finger on the label and just turning it by hand. I've done it. 
I do. Well, when I want to play, but when I want to listen to the secret message on Pink Floyd records, and you, you you play it backwards. Well, you can play it backwards, but you also tend, unless you really are trying, to play it at a, a not exactly even speed. So you end up with something that sounds a bit like the Exorcist. Yeah, you know, you know the deal. But he had thought about this, and so alongside the record of the voice, uh, he made a second trace with a tuning fork. And that is always vibrating at exactly the same rate. And he, he tells us the speed of the tuning fork. So we know that if we take that tuning fork and correct the speed of that, we can correct the voice along with it. Did Scott leave these and leave, leave a sort of note of where he'd left these in, in this institution for you to find, do you think? Did you think he sort of left these? Oh, well, you know, what? maybe one day somebody will be able to find these and look at them and maybe even play them back in, with some future technology that I can't even imagine. You left them there in the hopes that people back then would go to visit these archives and look at them and say, wow, this guy's brilliant. We need to support him and his work and oh, you know, right, I see. Give, okay. give him some, some you know, <laughs> he's a genius, I mean, which, which he was, uh, quite honestly. But still, the idea was very much to get recognition for his invention while it would still have done him some good. We're jumping ahead. You've got these beautiful scans. We've got this wonderful person who has, has come up with this idea of sooty bits of paper. Tell us, tell us the step from you, what you did when you got them and the decision to say, okay, how are we going to play these back? How are we going to hear them again? So for that first playback, David Giovannoni opened up the, the phonogram, cut out the individual strips of sound, cleaned them up uh, in, in graphics editing software, sent this, them to some associates of ours at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory in California. They happened to have a piece of software that they had designed as part of a, a project to try to play back other analog recordings optically. Say a, a broken 78 RPM record. You know, take a picture of that and try to get sound out of it. Uh, Earl Cornell was part of that project, got sound out of those, and then sent that back to us. Now it's the step of doing what I described before, where we take the 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 raw audio and then correct for speed. Uh, that came to me. I stayed up all night and adjusted it so that every five tuning fork vibrations were the same length, uh, adjusting the voice along with it. So that early the next morning, you know, as as the sun is just coming up, I was able to hear this voice from April 9th, 1860, crooning Au Claire de la Lune, recognizably through my headphones. Well, hang on. So let me, because this, this is this is an important moment in, in history, I think. It's a bit like, you know, Howard Carter opening the seal of the tomb of Tutankhamun for the first <laughs> time. So you're, you're about to hit play mm -hmm. on the oldest known recording of anything ever. Sound, did, could you hear that okay? It sounds ghostly, it sounds weird, it doesn't sound a lot like Claire de Lune. Well, the tune sounds like Au Claire de la Lune. The melody is there. Mm -hmm. Now, what it does not sound very much like is a nice performance of Au Claire de la Lune. It was Edouard Léon Scott de Martinville himself uh, singing, making a test recording. And why did he wow. sing so slowly? Well, this was an experiment. 
Now, today we think of recording music as something you do to playback performances, right? But back then, this was an a scientific experiment. He wanted to see if you sang Au Claire de la Lune into the phonograph, could you look at the traces it left afterwards and tell the notes apart? And so if you sing really slowly, maybe you've got a better shot at doing that because you'll you'll have a, a much longer trace, a much neater trace. That's what he was trying to do. We know that from the notes he left on it. Now there are cases where he recorded more frolicsome singing. They're a little more cheerful to listen to. But this one was an experiment. And so so to understand why it sounds the way it does, it makes sense to think, yeah, this was to this was to be looked at, not heard. It's a really interesting story. And it's quite a profound story, I think, in the history of invention, something that had been dreamt of for so long had actually happened. But then you have this wonderful time lag of hundred odd years, more than a hundred years. And then, you know, a bunch of people from people from Indiana with the new technology can suddenly bring it back to life. It's, I don't know. It's like finding the first photograph for the first time and seeing, and it, it, it's this link to another world. It opens this kind of portal. There's something rather ghostly about it and almost supernatural about it, isn't there? Well, it is a bit like time travel. I'd say it's about as close to time travel as we can, as we can get so far. You know, there's another thing people have dreamed about where we're not quite there yet, but I suppose if someone in the future writes the history of the time machine, they'll look back to our own times. Oh yes, people have been thinking about time machines for years and years as people hadn't figured out the trick of it yet. <laughs> um, what about his legacy? Obviously, I suppose when most people think, oh, recorded sound, Edison. And I, th- I think about sort of Edison's relationship with Tesla. It, was there a similar kind of, was there a rivalry? Did, would, did, were they aware of each other at any point? Scott was very much aware of Edison. I think everybody was aware of Edison in the, the late 1870s. It was, was big news, the invention of the phonograph in, in France as, as elsewhere. And Scott was very concerned to establish his uh, role in all of this. His descendants got in touch or tried to get in touch with Edison in the 1920s, I believe, wrote to Edison asking for some kind of a, an acknowledgement. You know, will you, you know, share the glory a little bit here, acknowledge that, you know, our, our guy, Edward Leon Scott de Martinville, had come up with this. But we, we were never able to find any sign that the Edison side responded up until 2017. In the year 2017 was the bicentennial of Edouard Leon Scott de Martinville's birth in 1817. There was a really nice symposium at Thomas Edison National Historical Park. I was there. David G. Venoni was there. We, we gave some talks about all this. We actually had a replica phonograph there and demonstrated recording on it and, and things like this. But uh, one of the most gratifying pieces of that event was a moment when descendants of the two inventors got together and, and shook hands and, you know, <laughs> sort of made it made it all right after all this time. So but it sometimes these yeah sometimes these things take a while. <laughs> exactly. Oh, it's 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 such an amazing story. Listen. Patrick, I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for coming on and telling us your story. I love it. It's oh, one of my yeah. favourites. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been fun. Yeah, it's been really, really good. And it's a, it's a lovely story in, the, in, in the, the history of inventions and the history of technology. Uh, it's been a pleasure. 
So there we go. That's it. Hope you enjoyed this particular episode. Once again, we've usurped Edison as the inventor of pretty much everything. We can go back before Edison. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. It's been a really interesting exploration of the cultural ideas behind our obsession with recording sound as as well as the technical. Don't forget, as ever, uh, get in touch with us. We love to hear from you. We love to hear what you think uh, and if you've got ideas that you'd like us to cover. However bizarre however crazy however arcane we would love to hear from you and love to stick it on the list and of course we will credit you if we use one of your stories so do get in touch subscribe as ever leave a review as ever and i look forward to your company next time Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Volk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.